you, even if you're not a Christian, you're just visiting today, A, glad you're here, but B, you probably know uh, the basic uh, fact that Jesus was crucified. Like, you probably picked up on that. But if you've been at Mitchell Road, or if you've been at a church for years, you maybe don't know all the things happening behind this. So we're going to look at just uh, chapter 19, 1 through 16. We're not going to get through everything. I want to set the scene, then I want to go through this text, and then after we uh, do that, I'll quickly apply it and we'll come to this table. But first of all, let me set the scene with three of the main players in this text. Two of them we won't even really see here, but these are the three main people in the text. A guy named Caiaphas, a guy named Herod, Antipas, and then a guy named Pontius Pilate. And what I did is I, I actually have pictures of these guys. They're not true pictures. We don't know what they look like. They're artist renderings. But the first person I want to talk about is a guy named Caiaphas. And Caiaphas is the one here in this uh, picture right there in the middle now, what I did, because some of you might be sensitive to images, you might have a conviction that you don't want to see Jesus as an image, so I edited these photos so that you can't see Jesus. Jesus is actually off to the right in this painting. But sometimes, just getting an artwork representation, it helps us to remember that the people that we talk about in the Bible are actually real people. We don't know if he looked like that, uh, maybe something like that, but they're real people that we're talking about. Who is Caiaphas? Caiaphas was the high priest of the Jewish people. So he had ecclesiastical authority, but he had no civil and he had no criminal authority. So he's responsible basically for the Jews in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas in a uh, church sense, in an ecclesiastical sense, right? Now he's going to be there, but he's going to be there with limited power, and he's going to have to get everything approved by the Romans. So think about it this way. The Romans have captured the whole area. They're actually in charge. But now they let certain Jewish guys, and one of them would be Caiaphas, have some authority so that they could keep the Jews at bay, so they can just keep them tamped down. All the Romans care about is getting their taxes, uh, getting the things, getting their crops, getting the things done. They just own that land and they're over that land but they don't really want anything to do with the jews or the customs well caiaphas is the high priest the representative of the jews here's how bad it is it's so bad that to uh, basically control caiaphas they would keep all of his high priestly robes so when they wanted to do a festival when they wanted to do a feast when they wanted to celebrate passover caiaphas would need his robes he would need all the things that he has on to do all the vestments the Romans would keep those, and he would have to go to Pontius Pilate, and he would have to beg for them. And he would say, could I please have my robes? I need to do this festival. I need to do the Passover. And Pontius would say, oh, well, are all the Jews playing fair? Are they all paying their taxes? Do we have any uprisings? Do we have any rebellions? No? Okay, you've, you've got everybody under control? Okay, you can have your robes. I'm going to need these back on Friday. You know, that's the way it would work. Now, just imagine that. Imagine I was doing a wedding for one of your daughters. And I had to go down to County Square, and I would have to say, please, could I have my robe? I need to do this wedding for uh, this member of Mitchell Road. And they would say, have all Mitchell Road members paid their taxes? Most likely not. Are, are all Mitchell Road members great, upstanding citizens of Greenville County? 
uh, don't know that one either. You know, and they would say, well, no, you can't have your robe. You know, I would have to like say, no, everybody's playing along. Everybody's doing exactly what they need to do. They would grant me the robe. Imagine that's the scenario that's happening in the Bible at this time. So we have Caiaphas. We have another guy who's all over this text. He's actually not in John, but uh, we'll see him in Luke named Herod Antipas. Let's put him up. Now, he looks like somebody would steal your dog. I mean, I, I, mean, I don't know why. Uh, we just get this biblical image of who Herod is, and they just drew him like he's mean as a snake. And, and he might have been, but it just to be materialized in history for the rest of your life looking like that is not great. Interestingly about Herod, and again, we have no idea if he actually looked like that. Interesting about Herod. Think about this. Herod Antipas was the son of Herod the Great, and he just didn't excel quite like Herod the Great did. So he was a small regional ruler over Galilee. He was ethnically an Arab. He was a practicing Jew, but he was educated in Rome. They sent him off to Rome to get all of his educated education there so he's got a lot going on and he looks like he needs a counselor or a hug or something but ethnically an arab he's a practicing jew who is educated in rome and is a prefect basically for rome in the upper area of galilee uh, he was the one that killed john the baptist if you remember that in john chapter six he was always intrigued with jesus Matter of fact, when he heard about Jesus doing miracles, he said, that must be John the Baptist resurrected. And he, for his whole life, wanted to meet Jesus. And at some times of his life, he wanted to kill Jesus. Matter of fact, in Luke chapter 12, the Pharisees say to Jesus, you need to leave. Herod is trying to find you, and he wants to kill you. And that resulted in one of my favorite sayings from Jesus maybe ever. They said to Jesus, you need to leave. Herod Antipas is trying to find you, and he wants to kill you. And Jesus said to them, you go tell that fox, which is what they called Herod Antipas. So he's using their language. He said, you go tell that fox, I'll be here today, I'll be here tomorrow, and I'll be here the next day till I finish my work. I, mean, I just love that. We, we always hear that side of Jesus. That I know he wants to kill me. He knows right where to find me. I'll be here today, I'll be here tomorrow, and I'll be here the next day. You go tell that fox that. I mean, I I love that. Matter of fact, I love that so much. I told somebody I loved it, and uh, one of the church members cross-stitched that into with a little fox, and uh, and it says, go tell that fox, and it sits in my office, and I look at it every now and then when I need to remember evil. You can flee. You can get behind us. We're going to be here until the work is finished. So that's Herod Antipas. Now, interestingly, we're going to see him a little bit later, but let's go ahead and look at Luke chapter 12. And in Luke chapter 12, that's where we see him. I'm just going to read for you verses 8 and 9. I don't think it's going to be on the screen. Jesus is sent to him during the night of crucifixion, and it says, When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, And he was hoping to see some sign done by him. 
So he questioned them at length, but he made no answer. And the chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. They arrayed him in splendid clothing, sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other on that day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. So during the night of Jesus' crucifixion, uh, what happens is Pilate hears and figures out that Jesus is from Nazareth. So he says, well, you're under Herod's jurisdiction, so I'm going to send you to Herod, and we'll see if he can figure out what to do with you. Herod says, look, he won't perform for me. He wouldn't do any of the magic tricks. I heard there was all kinds of healings. I heard there was miracles. He won't do anything. He's just quiet. So let's just beat him, mock him, and we'll send him back to Pilate. Why not? kind of bored tonight we're not jews we're not doing anything uh let's just have a good time with this guy and then we'll send him back so he comes back to Pilate, and let me kind of walk through the whole scenario when jesus is captured he goes to a man named uh annas annas is caiaphas's father-in-law used to be the high priest annas holds him for a little while And then Caiaphas goes out into the night and tries to find some people to confess or to bring accusations against Jesus. Spends all night doing that. Finally sends uh, Jesus to Caiaphas. Caiaphas spends that night starting to beat him. The bruises are starting to show. And then realizes, because I'm just a priest, I actually need the authority of the Romans to kill him. I can't kill him myself. So I'm going to send him to Pilate. Pilate gets him, beats him then sends him to Herod because he's from, Gal- from Nazareth. Herod can't do anything with him, beats him, sends him back to Pilate, and then Pilate crucifies him. I don't know if you realize that's what happens with Jesus on that night. He goes from Annas to Caiaphas, from Caiaphas to Pilate, from Pilate to Herod, from Herod back to Pilate, and then he's eventually crucified. Well, who was Pilate? Pilate did not live in Jerusalem. He lived in Caesarea Maritime, on the coast. It's beautiful. I've been there. Uh, You can see kind of the remnants of where his uh, empire would have been. And it's this beautiful blue water. And he hated Jerusalem. Why was he in Jerusalem? Well, he had to come to Jerusalem once a year, just like Herod Antipas had to come to Jerusalem once a year. Because during this time of Passover, 500,000 estimated, maybe more, maybe less, 500,000 Jews from around the country would all stream into Jerusalem. And so the Roman rulers from around the area had to come to Jerusalem to make sure everybody's going to behave, to make sure there's not going to be any treachery, to make sure there's not going to be a coup d'etat, to make sure nobody's going to try to take over anything. And so they hated it, though. The Roman rulers hated to do it. Just imagine, you're you're there, the place is packed, it's dusty, it's loud. And what are the Jews doing? Just get the scenario in your head. 500,000 Jews are all streaming in from around the country, plus the Jews in Jerusalem. What are they celebrating? They're all celebrating the fact that one day they're going to have a king, a Messiah, and it's not going to be Caesar. That's what they're actually celebrating. So the Romans are there listening to them, watching them celebrate the fact that one day they will be liberated from the tyranny of the Romans because they have a true and a better king. I mean, it's just a powder keg. I mean, every year, all the Romans come down and say, I hope we get through it this year. 
Caiaphas, you just get everybody to play along. We just need to collect the money. We need to get back to the seashore. We don't even want to be here. We don't understand you people. We just need your taxes and your harvest. But could y'all not just play along? The tension, I mean, the tension would have been every year would have been so palpable. And I think we can recognize that. Uh, You know when there's tension in a room or when there's tension uh, in the stands of a ball game and everybody can feel it. You might not even be a part of it, but you can just feel it. Who's going to throw the first punch? Or when some uh, baseball player flicks his bat uh, and trots around the bases rather than puts his head down and runs, you're like, okay, well, when's the fight going to be? Or you go to a hockey game and, you know, the first instant they drop their gloves. Or you can see, we've seen riots this year, right? Uh, We've seen them on TV, and this is not a political statement. Whether it's January 6th or whether it's other riots on the West Coast, you can watch that on the screen, and you can just feel the tension. Who's going to get shot? How is this going to happen? What's going to burn? You can just, you feel it. Well, every Passover would have been that way. They would have felt the tension. Caiaphas is trying to work with Pilate. Pilate is trying to work with Caiaphas, but it is very, very difficult. Now, let's walk through the text. That's the setting. Here's the text, and we'll do this quickly. Verse 1, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and arrayed in him a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you, that you may know I find no guilt in him. All right, so this is one of the first beatings. There were three levels of beatings, uh, and there's Latin phrases for them. I'm not going to go into them. But the first level is like you have a misdemeanor. You stole something. You would get beat. You would need to pay it back, and you'd be done. There's a, a second level of beating, which is more like a felony, and you would get beat for a long time. That's what the Romans would do until you were repentant. And then there's a third level of beating, And that beating, that flogging, is when you want to exhaust the man to a point of death so that the crucifixion will go quicker. Well, this is a second-level beating. (laughs) They're not yet flogging him uh, because Pilate has not decided to crucify him yet. They're not yet flogging him to the point of exhaustion. They're just having a, a good time with him. And interestingly, they're using whips. If you were caught doing something wrong, and you were a man of honor, they would use rods. They would beat you with rods. But if you were caught doing something wrong, you would use whips on slaves. So they viewed Jesus as a slave because they were using whips on them, not the rods on them. And if you look at three and four, here's what's happening. This is happening behind the scenes, and commentators believe, as do I, that Pilate is just trying to get out of this. Remember, Pilate wants the whole thing to go away. He's trying to wash his hands of Jesus before he actually washes his hands of Jesus. So in his mind, he thinks this is a shame-based culture. So let's take Jesus behind closed doors. Y'all do whatever you want to. Take some time. Make him look awful. Beat him. Put a crown of thorns on his head. We're going to mock him. We're going to shame him. Now we're going to bring him back out to the Jews. And we're going to say, hail king of the Jews. And hopefully because we've shamed him, that will be enough. And the Jews will say, we're satisfied. And everybody can just go their merry way. And Pilate can go back to his beach house. And everything will be fine. 
So Pilate's helping at verse 4 that the whole thing stops here. Well, their response is unfortunately 4 and 5. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you so that you might know I find no guilt in him. Look, I've already punished him. I've already mocked him. I find no guilt in him. What else do you possibly need? So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Just get that in your mind. Jesus takes your sin. We know that. He also takes all of your shame. I don't think we focus on that. Because there's a lot of shame that comes with sin. And there's a lot of shame that comes with messing up, not living up to your potential, whatever it is. Jesus takes that shame on too. I mean, that look, I would have, it would have torn me apart, but that look in his eye, I imagine like some puppy who's just like, I got I to gotta take it because I love him. Can't defend myself. But I love those people on the east side of Greenville. I've got to do this to redeem, to save the world. Nobody else can do it. Nobody else is holy enough. Nobody else has lived a perfect life. I've got to do it for them. But he's shamed for us. He takes on our shame and our sin, meaning you don't even have to have shame over your sin. I could riff on that. Verse 6, when the chief priests and the officers saw, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate thought, well, that, well, that didn't work. <laughs> I thought it was all going to be over. Like, why would they possibly want to crucify? Herod can't find the problem with them. Caiaphas can't find testimony against them. I can't find the problem with them. We beat them. What else do you need? And look at what he says. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Now, Pilate would have known they couldn't do that. They have no authority civilly or criminally to punish anybody. They, had, they don't have that authority. So he's baiting them. If they would take Jesus, and if they would crucify him, then Pilate could say to Tiberius, the emperor, look at these Jews, they're all out of control. And he could put them down like he would with a revolt. And historically, we know that Pilate had already done that in different regions of Judea and Jerusalem Anyway, he's already had several bloodthirsty revolts in his past. So he might have been kind of priming them for that. Then look at what they say. The Jews answer, verse 7, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he's made himself the son of God. And when Pilate heard that statement, he was even more afraid. He could be more afraid because he's getting deeper and further in. I th- we don't know. I think he's probably afraid because he realizes something is going on here that I can't put my finger on, but this man is unique. I've beat a lot of men in my lifetime, but he's acting differently than the rest of them. And their vitriol over this man is unparalleled. And I don't know what to do. I'm afraid. Am I going to kill the right guy or not? Look at verse 9. He entered into his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So this is interesting because if you get the scene in your head, he's gone from Annas, he's gone to Caiaphas, to Pilate, to Herod, back to Pilate, and now he's going in and out of the Roman 
palace, the Roman embassy there in Jerusalem. He's taking him out. See, this should be enough. Oh, you're not satisfied? Okay, let me take him back in. He sits Jesus back down and basically says, where are you from? Now, he knows he's from Nazareth because he's already sent him to Herod and he's already come back. So he knows where he's from. That's not what he's asking. What he's asking is, what in the world is going on right now? Who are you? And what is happening? Jesus gave him no answer. So then Pilate doubles down. Pilate said, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Do you not know that? Do you not know I have? And don't miss, all throughout this text, the irony is dripping. Here's Pilate saying to the king of the world, who is the authority, do you not know what kind of authority I have? And Jesus responds with an amazing amount of grace. Look at what he says, verse 11. Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. In other words, hey, Pilate, I know you're scared. (laughs) I know you need to pass. I know you're stuck. I know this is more Caiaphas's problem than it is yours. But just for the record, you wouldn't have any authority unless my father didn't give it to you. So let's get that straight, first of all. And I know you're in the bad I mean, the grace. I mean, this, this is just dripping with grace that Pilate doesn't quite see. But Pilate responds to it by saying, I can't kill this guy. There's something else going on. Verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So here's the Jews' trump card. This is the final card they have to play to get Pilate to kill Jesus because they need him to kill Jesus. They can't do it themselves. And here's what they say. This guy says he's a king. You serve a king named Tiberius. He lives in Rome. But if you don't crucify him, we're going to get word to him that you are no uh, amicus Caesarea, which is a Latin phrase for you are no friend of Caesar. It was a moniker. It was actually a title you could get. You are now a friend of Caesar. It was a title. And if you don't crucify him because he says he's king, then you don't serve that king. They're playing uh, his sensibilities against each other. It's a very effective tactical argument that they bring to him. And now he's stuck. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Um, This is a fascinating verse because it's ambiguous. Uh, I've read this verse, I don't know, 20 times this week in Greek because every now and then my six and a half years of Greek training sometimes pays off. And this was one of those weeks. Because after I reading it uh, in the original and several different types of it, several different textual criticisms, I can tell you it's still ambiguous. We don't know if he is taking Jesus and putting him on the judgment seat, or if he's coming to mock him, or if he's coming out himself and he's sitting on the judgment seat with Jesus there. You can't tell which one it is. It's probably the latter, 
But man, it's so appealing if it was Jesus on the judgment seat because then the full irony would just be in the text, would it not? Now here's the one who's going to judge all of us being mocked with this seat of authority while he is about to go to the cross. Here's what we do know. We know three things happen at this point. Uh, The first thing that happens is he's going to get a text message from his wife. And that's found in Matthew chapter 27, verse 19. I'll read it for you. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man. I've suffered much today because of him in a dream. So here he is, all the Jews around him, a lot going on, and some courier comes up and uh, hands him something. He looks at it. My wife, oh, I haven't seen her today. She, oh, she had a bad dream. Have nothing to do with that righteous man. He gets that message while he's right there in that moment. This is also when he would have um, negotiated with Barabbas, and then he would have also at this moment washed his hands. We don't see all of that in this text. But what we do see is 14 and 15. Now is the day of preparation and the Passover. is about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? I think bewildered. And the chief priest said, We have no king but Caesar. Their heresy has finally found its end. Or now the chief priests who know they have a king who's not Caesar are the ones actually saying, no, we're here to worship your God. Whatever it takes to get Jesus out of our lives, whatever we have to say, whatever we have to sell out on, whatever we have to do to get Jesus out of here is what we're willing to do. And he delivered them over to be crucified. And we know how that worked. Now, let me just apply it very quickly, and we'll come to this communion table. Caiaphas, Herod, Antipas, and Pontius Pilate all have one thing in common. You know what it is? Don't worry. Don't raise your hands if you do, uh, because I'm not going to call on you. We're Presbyterian. Just sit on them. But I do do want you to think. Every now and then, you got to think, right? What do they all have in common? Caiaphas, Herod, and Pilate all had this in common. If Jesus was out of my life, my life would be better. That's what they all had in common which is sometimes what we have in common with them. See, for, Chi- for Herod, let's start with Herod. Herod wanted pleasure. I mean, he wanted Jesus just to play along. And when Jesus came in the room and he wouldn't do party tricks, he wouldn't do miracles, he wouldn't entertain them, he was like, well, my life would be a lot better without them because I can have more pleasure in my life without Jesus, which You're about a step and a half. I'm about a step and a half from having that same thought, aren't we? If Jesus is not in my life, I'll have more pleasure. If I don't have to follow him through high school, I'll have more pleasure. When I follow Jesus, it's going to be a hard road, not an easy road. And if God is actually good, why do bad things happen to good people? I mean, we're we're just a hair's breadth from Herod if we're not Herod. But all the time, we think the same thing. It would be better if Jesus was actually out of my life, because then I could have the pleasure I'm actually longing for, which is not true. Caiaphas wanted power. And so he said, it'd be better if Jesus was out of my life because if Jesus is here, I don't get the attention, I don't get the power. Why are 5,000 people meeting him in the wilderness? They're not hearing my preaching and my lectures. I've worked all week on these lectures. Nobody's coming to hear my lectures about the Old Testament. They're all flocking to Jesus. 
If I can only get rid of him, then I'll have power. And then I'll have control again. And I'll be able to do what I want with my life. That sound familiar? (laughs) I mean, we're just a step and a half from being Caiaphas, if we're not already. And for Pilate, what did he want? He wanted self-preservation. I just want this all to go away. I just want to go back to Caesarea with my wife. I want to get away from these Jews and this God-forsaken, dusty, dry Jerusalem and this outpost in Judea. I want an appointment in France or in England or in Rome. I want to be a regional director over Italy. I don't want any of this. I want to mess with this. It's too much. I just want self-preservation. And he got it. We already said it. Um, Suffered under Pontius Pilate. That's in our Apostles' Creed. You know who didn't make it into our Apostles' Creed? Everybody else. Abraham didn't make it. Moses didn't make it. Joshua didn't make it. Peter didn't make it. Paul didn't make it. The only person mentioned in our Apostles' Creed is Pontius Pilate. (laughs) I find that amazingly ironic. So here's the question, friends. We know how this story ends. We know that Jesus goes to the cross, and he has to because God is just, so our sin has to be punished. And we know that it has to be Jesus because God is holy, and none of us could stand up to it, and we're all going to see our sin again. But he's just, and he's holy, and he's also loving, so Jesus had to go to the cross so that we would know we have a way to come to God and be reconciled to him. We know how the story ends. But here's the question that I have for you. How is this story going to end for you? Because your lives are not done yet. They're yet to be written. We still can reimagine what it would be like to follow this king of glory, to not throw him out of our lives, to not think life would be better if I didn't have Jesus, if I could get him out of my finances, if I could get him out of the way I make business decisions, if I could get him out of my sexuality, if I could get him to quit mingling with my substance abuse, if I could get him to not think about what I look at on the internet, if I get him out of when I want to gossip about somebody or envy or whatever it is, if I, if I could get Jesus out of these areas of my life, my life would be better. And Jesus says at the table, no, I'm inviting you to let me be a part of all of you. Don't kick me out. It made the news rounds this week uh, that Harvard uh, hired or actually voted on an atheist chaplain, Greg Epstein. And there's some technicalities there. What actually happens is the chaplains themselves vote on their leader for the chaplaincy, but they voted on Greg Epstein, who uh, was, by the New York Times standards, called the godfather of the humanist movement. I don't have a problem with, I mean, if I was an atheist at Harvard and I didn't have representation in the spiritual development office, I, would, I, don't, I don't think non-Christians should act like Christians. It doesn't surprise me at all. I am shocked they called him the godfather of the humanist movement. I mean, that's a little short-sighted. The guy's only 44 years old. That would be Thales or Aristotle or uh, Freyerbach, uh, maybe Hegel, but it would be another philosopher. It would not be 44-year-old Greg Epstein. But people have been wringing their hands over that because Harvard's mission statement says this, let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider 
well the end of his life and studies to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, and therefore to lay Christ at the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. That is Harvard's founding mission statement from John Harvard in 1636. And they've come a long way from that. And this is evangelical red meat. I mean, you just love this, right? What, what you want me to do right now, I know it. I know you people. What you want me to do right now is say, wring our hands and create fear. And say, oh my word, what has happened to Harvard? What's going to happen? To the, the whole culture is falling. Everything is falling apart. Jesus, I don't even know if he's on the throne anymore. I mean, what is happening to this world? And I'm sure it's being preached like that all around the country right now. This hand-wringing, fear-mongering that somehow we've lost power and we've lost control and Harvard can't even keep it together. Here's a question, friends. The point is not whether or not Harvard keeps its mission statement. The point is whether or not you'll keep Harvard's mission statement. Because look, unless you're a big donor or alumni, you have no influence over Harvard. And if you were a big donor or alumni of Harvard, I'd know it by now. So none none of you do. There's not a thing in the world you can do to change Harvard University, unless you move up there or meet Greg Epstein and GSP. But you know what you can do? You can change your own vine and fig your own home, your own neighborhood, your own business, your own teams, your own uh, legal practice, your own medical practice. For the people that are around you and with you, you can invite Jesus into all of those places that you've already kicked them out of and say, you don't belong here, Jesus. You can invite them into your marriage You can invite them into the way you're going to make a college decision. You can invite them into your high school relationships. You can invite Jesus into all those areas of your life that you have wanted to kick him out of because you thought like Caiaphas, like Herod, and like Pilate, maybe this would be a little bit easier if I did this without Jesus instead of with him. You could keep Harvard's mission statement. And in doing that, we get to do what it says in Micah chapter 4. And they shall beat their swords and the plowshares and their spears and the pruning pruning hooks. And nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. See, friends, here's the truth. You, You don't need evangelical red meat to make yourself fearful. You need bread and wine. You need shalom. You need to know it's finished. You need to know that Christ has the best intent for you. You need to know that he's the Lord of glory. You need to know that he went to the cross to love you and reimagine your life as a life with him, not just for him, not pressing and kicking against the goads, but you need the shalom that comes with, the invitation that comes with this table to live for and with Christ, the King of glory. In the name of Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, We pray now, as we come to this table, that we would enjoy you, that we would enjoy your presence, that we would enjoy uh, 